0: Welcome, this is week three of um, Northeast Scotland Gospel Training, the Bible Overview. We're delighted that you're joining us uh, to share in this, and uh, I'll pray for Jeremy before we begin. God our Father, thank you for the, uh, the scriptures that you have given to us. Thank you that uh, by your Holy Spirit you uh, are pleased not only to author them, but to interpret them, to teach us. And we put our hands up straight off and say, we need you to teach us. And so we ask for Jeremy, that your Holy Spirit would uh, anoint him, giving him clarity of thought and expression, uh, a freshness in his own mind and heart, and that you give us good ears to listen. So will you be with us now and grant us your help and blessing this evening for Jesus Christ's sake. Amen. Great. Thank you, Jerry. Thank you everybody for tuning in again. Um, It's lovely to have you keeping on coming back. Um, We left at last time at the end of Exodus. We've got through two books of the Bible so far, but as you'll remember, um, Genesis and Exodus are so much the pillars of uh, the rest of the Bible that we need to spend extra time there. We will be starting to quicken up a little bit. Um, We're going to come to Leviticus now, and uh, you'll remember last time we finished off with... um, Moses presenting the Ten Commandments to Israel, Exodus 20, and all the accompanying laws, that is when Israel became God's people, and there was a a kind of a ratification ceremony where there was sprinkling of blood on the people, and then um, the tabernacle is built, Exodus 25 to 40, and the tabernacle is going to be the place where um, the people will come to worship God. So we can see what God's priorities are, setting out his laws, and then very quickly establishing what worship will look like. And uh, the book of Leviticus then um, takes place over the next year, so that the nation of Israel are at the foot of Mount Sinai for the next year, receiving regulations for how to worship. And I guess the key word that you could put on the book of Leviticus is the word holy, holiness. Holiness um very early in the bible god is wanting to tell us yes he's a god of love who creates paradise and loves people goes walking with garden uh, in the garden of eden with adam and eve but very soon of course his laws are flouted sin enters into the world and we see the first taste of god's holiness in genesis 3 and now in the book of leviticus god is spending a whole book if you like teaching his people the importance of his holiness and how they are to approach a holy 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 God. God of course wants to live in the midst of his people. The tabernacle was the place where God dwelt and that was right at the center of the Israelite community and all the various tribes were organized all the way around the, uh, the tent in the middle. It is an extraordinary thought to think that the God of highest heaven, the God of the universe, should stoop to, in a sense, live in a tent among a group of nomads. And for the next 40 years, as we'll discover, he, they go around the desert with God. God's presence is manifest in this box called the Ark of the Covenant, gold-covered box. Within the Ark of the Covenant are the Ten Commandments, which are really basically to teach Israel that Israel are to be led and ruled by the word of God. And then as they approach him in this tabernacle setting, they need to be so aware of his holiness. The tabernacle has a seven foot perimeter fence. So it's, it's just too tall for a regular human being to look in. He kind of looks over the top of this fence and he will see kind of the top part of the Holy of Holies in beautiful colors, red, white and blue and so on. And he's reminded in the dankness of the desert that uh, there is beauty in God's presence. God's presence is to be more desired than anything else in all the world. And even though the Israelite wants to get into God's beautiful presence, he is barred from doing so because he is a sinner, uh, born into Adam's sin, and God is holy. And as you come into the tabernacle, there's the outward court, and then there's the holy place, and then there is the most holy place through A curtain that is several inches thick, multicolored curtain, um, higher than a man can reach. The top of the curtain, you'll remember um, when Jesus dies at Calvary, we're told that the curtain is ripped from top to bottom. In other words, it wasn't ripped by a human hand, it was ripped by the hand of God as, as Jesus dying on the cross opens the way now into God's most intimate presence. So what was barred off? for the old testament israelite is now our dwelling place Um, as a hymn says the holy of holies has become my dwelling place when you think of the remarkable thought that what is depicted in the tabernacle in the temple is now living in your heart um your heart as a christian today ever since you received christ and the holy spirit came in your heart is a temple of the holy spirit that's what paul teaches in fact he tells people in corinth you know tells men off for getting involved in sexual immorality because do you not know that your body is a temple of the Spirit? So as we think about the holiness of Leviticus, let's remember that we dwell in holiness. God hasn't gone soft on sin. He has dealt with sin in the most radical way by the death of his own son, but he is as angry at sin today as he has always been, and the Holy Spirit dwells within us as, as believers. So we need to be thinking, am I making the Holy Spirit at home in my life so all of these thoughts come alive as we go through the book of leviticus now the book of leviticus begins with a series of sacrifices if you've been reading through the old testament leviticus is where people where people become unstuck because it's not very attractive literature you've got to understand it from the inside in a sense what is this thing called holiness all about the israelites are told they cannot approach god any old way There is only one way into the tabernacle. and Of course, Jesus in the New Testament will say, I am the way. I am the only way into God's presence. And you couldn't come to worship God without a sacrifice, without some offering of some kind. And of course, the key issue that God wants to teach us is that without the shedding of blood, there is no forgiveness of sin. So, in a sense, the tabernacle, the worship rituals were full of blood. We just need to get our minds through that. The Old Testament's not near as scared of blood and guts as we are today. But we need to be reminded that it took the radical death of the animal. The, the worshiper would bring a lamb or bring a bull or bring a goat, depending on how wealthy they were. If you were poor, you could just bring a bird, pigeon, or something like that. It's interesting that when Jesus is dedicated in the New Testament, his his mum and dad, Mary and Joseph, are poor. They bring birds. Um, but, of course, if the whole community was having their sins dealt with, there was the bigger animal. It was, it was a, a cow or a bull that would be offered for the sake of the whole community. Um, a bull would also be offered for the sake of the high priest. The high priest's sin was considered on the same level as the sin of the whole community of Israel. So you offered the same animal for the whole community as you did for the priest, which shows how important the high priest's role is and therefore shows how important the role of leaders in the New Testament church is. Our holiness is massively important. And you all have heard of too many stories now of, of pastors and ministers who have fallen from grace, who have committed some kind of immorality. And it's not just their lives that are affected, a whole church is affected, a whole network is affected. And of course, God's name comes into disrepute because a minister has been acting in a certain way. Of course, when any Christian acts in an immoral way, God's name comes into disrepute. But particularly when a church leader, when somebody that both the church expects to be holy and the wider community expects to be holy, when he sins, it's massively important. All of that is depicted in the fact that for the high priest, a bull had to be offered for his sins. And of course, the New Testament will make a huge deal of the fact that Jesus, our great high priest, has no sin he he doesn't need to offer a sacrifice for himself he becomes the sacrifice and as we read about these sacrifices which we lay out actually in this page the page opposite um, sacrifices in the tabernacle you'll see all the different kinds of sacrifices that are due there Um, you'll notice that the top two sacrifices the sin offering and the guilt offering are in a sense the straightforward sin offerings they're the ones that equate most to the cross where Jesus died so Jesus is the Lamb of God who takes away the sin of the world it's important to remember though that the sin offering and the guilt offering were not the only offerings in Israel three other offerings include the burnt offering this is a really important one where the whole animal was burnt in on the altar it wasn't always the whole animal that was burnt in other sacrifices sometimes Bits of an animal were taken and given to the priest so that the priest could eat and so on and be part of of the worship. But the burnt offering was unique in that it was the whole animal that was devoured in the fire on the altar. And the way that relates to our lives today, Paul takes this theme up in Romans 12, those those famous passages, brothers and sisters, in view of God's mercy, in view of this gospel that has saved us, God has given his son for us. In view of God's mercy, let us offer our bodies as living sacrifices. He could have said as a burnt offering, a whole burnt offering. So it's not the sin offering that Paul is referring to there. We cannot be a sin offering because Christ has been our sin offering we are the whole burnt offering. We're meant to place our lives on the altar for God and say, Lord, take me, take my mind, take my thoughts, my imagination, my physical energies, take all of me and use me for your service. I don't know if you've seen the skit that often happens at at youth camps where um, the, the, the offering bag is coming around and people are putting various bits of the offering bag and then a much bigger bag is brought in And instead of the person putting his money into the offering bag, he puts his whole self into the offering bag. That's really what the whole burnt offering is all about. And it's a reminder for us, we were bought with a price, the precious blood of Christ. We are not our own. We belong entirely to Jesus Christ. We're not even employees of Jesus Christ, you know, with with five weeks holiday and eight days statutory and and so on. We are 24-7. Uh, we belong to jesus christ by rights he has bought us with a price and so our reasonable worship as paul will say in romans 12 it's reasonable it's not extreme it's reasonable our reasonable worship is to offer the entirety of our lives as a living sacrifice to jesus christ so ask yourself tonight as i ask myself where am i on that um is jesus a sunday morning only thing for me Is he a a Sunday morning and a few Bible times that I do during the week kind of thing? All of which is good, but that doesn't mean you're offering your whole body, does it? Or do you look on your life and say, Lord, I belong to you entirely. Use me, every part of me for your glory. So the sacrifices are offered for both thanksgiving and forgiveness. I haven't mentioned the grain offering, the fellowship offering. There are sacrifices used just for the people to give thanks for the harvest and so on that God gave them. and how much we need to give thanks for all the good gifts we have. In this, we're in the top 2% in Aberdeen of the most wealthy people in the world. Um, And yet, isn't it so true, in the Western world in particular, some of the least satisfied and most grumbling people in the world are those who have the most. Let us Christians stand out as those who are thankful for everything God's given us. So that's what the sacrifices represent. And then a lot of detail in Leviticus about the high priest, which is confusing to begin with, but it's the priest who brings people to God. That is his job. And the priest offers these sacrifices. The worshiper will come to the door of the tabernacle. He will place his hand on the beast to basically say, my sins are transferred to this animal. Then he hands the animal over to the high priest. The high priest takes it, kills it, and so on. So it's the high priest's job to offer the sacrifices. And you remember we said last week the high priest had very ornate garments um, in line with his holy role. Of course, he, he was the one allowed inside the beautiful curtains, the beautiful artistry. Of The tabernacle and later on the temple the ordinary people weren't allowed in there The priest was allowed into God's presence to that extent So his outward clothing had to reflect the holiness of his role and the beauty of God's presence That's what the priest was meant to do when you came up as a worshiper saw the beautiful clothing of the priests You were reminded of the beauty of God his presence is the most desirable thing to have in the universe so the high priest um, has these beautiful robes He has jewels, the 12 jewels representing the 12 tribes of Israel. And he would enter God's presence with literally the people of God on his heart. And it's not difficult to see how much the high priest foreshadows Jesus Christ. Um, The fascinating thing is, as we said last week, I think Leviticus 16, if there's one chapter of Leviticus to go through, it's Leviticus 16, where this is the day of atonement, the special day for the forgiveness of the whole nation of Israel. And on this day, Um, the high priest well he will do two things number one there are two goats one of which will be sacrificed the other of which will be sent out into the wilderness the priest will lay his hand on the head of the goat that will be sent out into the wilderness as if he is transferring again the sins of israel the sins of the whole nation onto this goat so i'm sure you'll be thinking jesus christ yes all my sins were laid upon him isaiah 53 uses that language um he, he carried my sins, Peter will say, in his body to the tree. That's what's being reflected as this scapegoat, as they're called. Um, the high priest puts his hand on the scapegoat, transferring the sins of Israel, and the scapegoat goes outside the camp and basically dies of exposure. That is the issue. And then of Of course, when you come to the crucifixion, you realize how beautifully this picture is Jesus Christ. He is crucified outside the camp. He was crucified outside the city walls where, where those who had been rejected by Israel go. And of course, as Jesus Christ is nailed to a cross, Deuteronomy said, cursed is anyone who hangs from a tree. So the crucifixion is saying Jesus is cursed because he's hanging from the tree and he has been rejected by Israel. He's hanging outside the city wall but he is carrying our sins there. He is carrying our sins outside the camp so that he might bear the wrath of God upon himself away from the people of God, so the people of God can be forgiven, the people of God can be in God's presence, the people of God can know him and love him and enjoy him. Jesus goes to the place of the outcast so that he might die in our place and bear in his body the sins of the world. Isn't it magnificent? Um, and of course, Hebrews 13, is fascinating in the New Testament. Hebrews 13 says, go to Jesus outside the camp. By that, the writer means there were Jews who were Christians who were being persecuted for their faith. And they were then shying away from their Christian faith because of the persecution. They were scared of the crucifixion. They were scared of the, of the persecution. They were scared of the mockery that they would receive for becoming Christians. But the writer says, if you truly follow this Jesus who was crucified outside the camp, you will be willing to face the shame and reproach that he bore as he went outside the camp to the cross. Think to yourself in your life, your working life, your family life, perhaps surrounded by non-Christians, are you willing to face the shame and reproach of following Jesus Christ? The world will hate you just as it hated me, Jesus said to his disciples in John's gospel. Are you willing to face that shame and reproach? Paul describing his apostleship, said that he was like the last man coming into the, the arena, ready to be butchered by people to the roar of crowds. That's how he saw his apostleship, suffering with Jesus Christ. Can we learn to see our suffering as something that we do with Jesus, as something that brings us closer to Jesus Christ, who was crucified outside the camp? Go to him, says the writer to the Hebrews. Jesus said, if anyone is ashamed of me and my words, I will be ashamed of him. When I come back with with all my holy angels, we will stand before Jesus Christ one day, the the man who was nailed outside the city walls on a cross, and he will ask us, have you been ashamed of me? Have you been afraid of standing up for me? Or is it the reverse? Have you been outspoken for me? Have you nailed your colors to a mast? Everybody in your workplace and your family knows that you're a Christian. You've made it absolutely clear when it comes to Christians being mocked for their moral positions. You are right there ready to be mocked for it if that's what it takes. Um, this is what it means to be a Christ follower. So all of that coming from the, the beautiful illustration of the high priest, um, uh, bearing the sins, put, putting the sins on the scapegoat and sending the scapegoat out. And then, of course, the other goat is sacrificed. And the high priest, what he does then is he takes off his beautiful ornate robes. And he goes in in literally white, kind of a white t shirty thing and, and white underwear, literally. It describes it as that. That is how he enters the Holy of Holies with blood, describing the humility of the high priest, the, the, the purity, if you like. And, of course, the Old Testament high priest, again, depicting Jesus Christ, who takes off his robes of glory. That is his move from heaven to earth. Heaven to earth is an extraordinary move. Um, That in itself would have made Jesus worthy of worship. But the fact that he went from God becoming a man to the man becoming the suffering servant, the one who was treated as less than a man hanging on a cross, that's just extraordinary. Jesus empties himself, as Charles Wesley's hymn says, emptied himself of all but love and bled for Adam's helpless race. That is how Christ comes to us in the humility of his manhood, even though he was absolute deity. In the purity of his character. That is how he comes to the cross, just like the, the, the priest dressed in white. That is how he comes to the cross to lay down his life for the sins of the world. So all of these things stemming from um, the idea of um, the uh, sacrifices offered. Now, um, uh, the year of Jubilee is just the last thing I want to mention here about Leviticus. Um, point D here of number one. The year of Jubilee means that all debts are canceled and slaves are set free. At the end of of Leviticus, lots of people missed this chapter. It's a precious chapter where the slaves who were part of Israel, um, they were allowed to be set free. Every 50th year, they were allowed to be set free. All the masters had to set their slaves free and uh, now of course there was good reason for that to happen in ancient israel god didn't want there to be a rich poor divide wanted slaves to be able to gain their own independence and uh, be able to be restored to to normal life and so on um but also it beautifully points to the gospel again that jesus is our jubilee i don't know if you've heard that michael card song that jesus has completely cancelled our debts and just like the slaves uh to their masters were set free on the year of jubilee So we, as slaves to sin, we are set free completely by the blood of Christ. So I'm not going to say any more about Leviticus. We've got to keep going, but there's so much here about um, Christ and his sacrifice. The one other issue to mention about Leviticus before we move to Numbers is the idea of cleanness. A lot of the stuff that is difficult to read in Leviticus concerns, you know, if you had um, skin problems in ancient Israel, you would have to be put out of the camp. And then the priest had to say that you were okay to return to the camp, you had to be cleaned up. Um, If there was a house, for example, that had mildew on it, which seems a very normal thing, why would there be anything religious about a house with mildew on it? But a house with mildew, the priest had to go and make sure that it was cleaned and then do a ritual over it to say, this house is okay, again, to be um, in the camp of Israel. So, again and again throughout Leviticus, God is saying, I am totally clean. I am the sum of all perfections. And if anyone's going to approach me, they've got to be totally clean as well, not just a little bit clean. There were so many rules and regulations about cleanliness in Israel that that don't make sense initially. But God is saying, Um, My inner holiness, the only way I can explain it to you as human beings, is for you to look at your outward cleanliness. You need to clean yourselves. And, of course, there were ritual washings for the priests before they ever entered into, into the tabernacle and so on. It's not that God was concerned with the bodily hygiene of his people, even though that's not an unimportant thing. It's that he was concerned that they understood how holy he was, how unclean they were, and how they needed to be cleaned up by him to be worthy of his presence. These are themes that we don't talk about very much in church today, the holiness of God, the absolute cleanness of God and what it takes to enter his presence, but they're, they're so core for us. And Christ being the sinless one nailed to the cross, it is so core that he was sinless. And when we become Christians, then our job is not to say, great, I've got my salvation, I'll stick it in my back pocket, I'm on my way to heaven now so I can live any old way I please, no. If we have been saved by the sinless one, he wants us more and more and more as the Holy Spirit comes in and takes control of our thoughts and ideas and motivations. He wants us to be more and more holy, to be cleaned up from the inside. So think yourself tonight, what are my sins that I am battling with? Are you motivated to clean them up? Are you motivated to say, Holy Spirit, expose parts of my life that are still unholy, unclean, that make God angry? expose those to me because I want to be a clean vessel ready to do your will. Purify my heart. Remember that song? Let me be as gold and precious silver. Refiners fire. My soul's one desire is to be holy. We need to return to this theme in our churches, that we understand the holiness of God, so that we understand why it took a gruesome cross to pay for the ugliness of our sin. And so that we understand what true discipleship looks like. Walking with Jesus Christ means being pure of heart, which is incredibly difficult to do in our age in particular. Images are everywhere to make us unholy, television, internet, media, The world is almost programmed now in such an upfront way, a more upfront way and visual way than ever before. It's programmed to leave our holiness in tatters. We've got to fight for holiness. Are you ready to do that? And I found many Christians find it helpful to have an accountability buddy that they will pour out their hearts to and say, look, these are the sins in my life. The book of James says, confess your sins to each other. That's how seriously we need to take it. Do we do that? I think that's very, very rare in Aberdeenshire, Christians confessing their sins to each other, not to say, ha, look at this sin that I've committed, but it's to say, I want to be cleaned up and I want to be accountable to my brother or sisters so that I'm not living a double life. How many stories have there been of people that look right on a Sunday and for years they're in a, an evangelical church carrying their large black bible and they look every inch the evangelical and then we discover they're having an affair or they're involved in some dirty business deal or something like that or, or they're abusing their family at home horrendous things that that could have been stopped earlier on in that person's life if they had opened their life to accountability are we ready to do this i could go on about john wesley's groups of 12 to 14 who were absolutely ruthless in accountability and that's what made the church holy in the 1700s, where the rest of England were basically a bunch of drunkards and social problems were everywhere. John Wesley, by the power of the Spirit, cleaned up England in his day because of ruthless accountability. Today, we can live a double life and nobody's going to ask any questions because we're not vulnerable enough to open our lives to somebody else. We, so long as we look good on a Sunday, it doesn't matter what we do the rest of the week. The church cannot prosper. Our gospel cannot be powerful while we're living like that right i'll get off my hobby horse we're going to move on to numbers now the sheet already looks like it's on to numbers so um if leviticus is about holiness numbers is about disobedience um, but numbers the first 10 chapters of numbers interesting people again skip over these cuz they're they're lists and not very attractive to read the storyline really starts from chapter 11 onwards, but Numbers is at the tail end of this year that the Israelites are living at the foot of Sinai, learning how to worship God and approach God properly. And uh, the first 10 chapters of Numbers has a lot of military um, verbs and military ideas in it because God is wanting to change his people from a group of slaves with a slave mentality that was in Egypt to an army who is then going to go and take the promised land. Let's remember the big story, of course. Um, God called Abraham centuries earlier. I'm going to show you, show you a land. I'm going to take you to this land, this land of my choosing, a land of milk and honey, the land of Canaan. So now, years later, centuries later, Israel are now moving out to take this land. But they can't do it as a bunch of slaves. They need to be organized. They need to be like, like a military group with military precision. And uh, we've got to ask ourselves as the church today, Are we organized are we structured are we fighting fighting for holiness fighting for the gospel like an army Um, the Salvation Army William Booth got this idea that we need to be proactive we need to be organized and structured I've seen too many churches where people say well look we don't need to organize because the Holy Spirit needs to take control of this church and there seems to be some you know, uh, Holy Spirit being in control of the church and being well-organized seem to be two polar opposites for people. What an utter nonsense. The Holy Spirit wants us to be strategic. And it's a sign of the Holy Spirit at work in a church when a church becomes more organized, becomes more like an army of God, battling for personal holiness, structured into groups of people that are utterly committed to each other. Think of your home groups or your Bible study groups in this way. If you were in, a, in an army platoon, for example, you would be fighting with your mother at your right-hand side to the death. You would be saying, comrade, come with me into battle today and let's hold on to each other or else we die. Now you compare that attitude to what we see in home groups and Bible studies half the time. Am I going to attend the Bible study? Oh, it's just the Bible study. Or the people in my group, I'm, I'm not here for them. I'm just here to take in a few more morsels from scripture and then go home again. That is not how it should be among the people of God. We should be carrying each other's burdens. We should be spurring one another on towards love and good deeds. We should be challenging each other. Who are the people in your sphere of influence who you are witnessing to about Jesus Christ? That's what a Christian army looks like. Not, I'll come to church, take in my sermon, grade it out of 10 and go home again. It doesn't matter what I've done. That's not being a Christian at all. And I'm convinced there are a lot of people attending evangelical churches perhaps for years who actually aren't Christians. They've never become an army. They've never been on the move for Jesus Christ. There, there's no such thing as taking land in the church. Of course, if you look at the whole story of, of Numbers, you don't want to be Joshua. It's going to be a big story of taking land. Are we moving forward as a church? It's easy in Scotland to think, well, in our beleaguered days when so many people are leaving the church and, you know, two percent you know, of evangelicals left in the nation, our job is just to kind of hang on to the truth rather than take the truth out to a lost world. The church will never grow unless we have this mentality of taking the word, taking the gospel out to a lost world, becoming like an army on the front foot, onward Christian soldiers marching as to war, not backward Christian soldiers fleeing from the fight with the cross of Jesus nearly out of sight as somebody else wrote. Are we an army? Are we organized? Do we look for organization? If you're an elder of your church, how many hours do you spend in your eldership? Or is that just a once a month committee meeting and you think that you're leading a church that way? Nonsense. The elders have to set the tone. The pastors have to set the tone for the church, which means you work all the hours God sends. You organize, you structure, you turn a bunch of slaves into an army ready to march to the beat of God's drum. That's the challenge of Numbers 1 to 10. Let's go ahead here. God's presence, of course, throughout Numbers as the as the camp leaves um, from the foot of Mount Sinai and starts its journey, which wasn't meant to take 40 years, of course. They thought it was going to take just a few months, but they leave and they're led by God. There's the pillar of cloud by day and the pillar of fire by night. Very simple, but utterly profound thought that we as a church, we march to the beat of God's drum, So while we want to be strategic, while we want to be as well organized as we can be, we do not lead the church through simple business strategy or business ethics. We march the beat of God's drum. He says when we go, he says where we go. And I don't know about you, at the start of elders meetings, we're saying every time, now, Lord, help us not to make decisions tonight by human wisdom. Help us not to make pragmatic decisions that are human-centered. May we know the mind of your Holy Spirit so that we are led by you, and we only move a foot when you tell us to. Um, that's what God's presence in the cloud and the fire, leading Israel through the desert, that's what it looks like. We've washed the beat of God's drum. But when God says go, we go. The church is on the move. Um, Churches are never still, just like Christians are never still. If you think you're still as a church as a Christian, you're going backwards. You're either moving forwards with God in you or you're having a time where God is sifting you, refining you and preparing you for the next forward assault. But we are an army led by God, led by Jesus Christ in the power of the Holy Spirit. We don't do things the way the world does them. We don't do things pragmatically. We do things according to how the Spirit tells us to do them and we'll hear a lot more about that when we come to joshua the military strategy that israel uses in the book of joshua is crazy it's not a military strategy at all it's all to do with holiness it's all to do with being god's people and doing things god's way marching around walls seven times no one has ever used that strategy in the whole of military history but god's people did it because god told them that's the way i'm going to bring down the walls as a church we need to do things god's way centered on the word centered on preaching the word to people. Centered on introducing them to Jesus Christ, centered on growing in holiness, spurring each other on in Christ-likeness. That's how we will be a powerful church. Not with weapons from the world um, of pragmatism and and business strategy, but with the weapons given to us by the Spirit. Love, joy, peace, patience, gentleness, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, self-control. Praying that every word that we say will be set on fire by the Holy Spirit who's called us to bring his gospel to a lost generation. Of course as Israel are being led you'll know the story they grumble 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 and uh, We in the West need to really hear this Um, Life wasn't easy for the Israelites of course They were going through a desert the sand really was hot food really was scarce But of course God provides food from heaven Incredibly provides food from heaven the manna but of course the manna didn't taste great and after a little while the people got bored So they started moaning and grumbling again Um, God was deliberately forcing his people to live simply So that they could depend utterly on him he provided the bread he provides water and so on as they go through this this desert he is leading them through a desert so that they'll learn the lessons of the desert but they don't and incredibly within just a short while of leaving egypt they are complaining i want to go back to egypt i remember the leeks and onions by the nile wasn't the water of the nile so cool wasn't it lovely how quickly they forgot the whips of their overlords the horror of being slaves in egypt And isn't it true when we become Christians and after a little while the Christian life gets tough, you know, like Jesus parable, the thorns grow up and uh, we're planted in places that are difficult and hard. Are we going to give up? Um, And a little while along the Christian journey, we can say, oh, I wish I was back uh, as a non-Christian. Wasn't life so much freer then? Wasn't it so much easier then? Was Was it what? When you're lost, when you're heading for judgment, when you don't know why you're alive, when you've got no purpose for your existence. But we grumble as Christians saying the call to holiness is too tough. The way is too dead like. And of course, Jesus will tell us uh, the way is narrow. Um, It's the broad road that leads to destruction. It seems an easy road where there aren't the, the restrictions of holiness, if you like. Um, and as somebody has said, that the narrow road is going right up the middle of the broad road. We feel that the force of the world, the flesh, and the devil, everything else charging the other way, but they're charging the other way towards destruction. We are walking this tight, narrow road with holiness and take up your cross and follow me. We are walking this road that is heading to glory, it's heading to paradise. Don't dream of going back. Don't turn your head back like Lot's wife, who was turned into a pillar of salt so they grumble they grumble God judges them and as we'll see again God doesn't do things by half when he judges the people who are opposing Moses leadership for example he opens the the earth and the earth swallows these Israelites and at the end of the whole 40 years of wilderness wanderings of course we're told that only two people were actually made it from that original generation that left Egypt only two people made it to the promised land And Paul says, be warned you Christians today who look all the bit like you're a a classic evangelical attending an evangelical church. Are you showing that you're born again? Are you walking with Jesus Christ? Are you moving forward in your Christian life? Remember the Old Testament saints in the desert. Their bodies were strewn over the desert as a warning to us on whom the fulfillment of the ages has come. Let's not take our Christianity lightly. And if we feel that we're in a rut at the minute or we haven't moved forward in a long time, be afraid be afraid and get back on your knees and say lord i've been wandering away from you perhaps for a long time now lord bring me back bring me those convictions that i first knew when i when i met jesus christ for the first time refresh my life or else i'm going to be like these people in israel grumbling my way through the desert going nowhere and ending up not the people that god wants us to be um so the constant grumbling happens and of course you'll know the story um 12 men went to spy in canaan 10 were bad two were good moses sends spies out to see this new promised land and um 10 of them come back with a report. oh no there are giants there we don't want to go anywhere near there it's a scary land even though those 10 knew that god had promised them the land this wasn't go and see if the land's okay to see if you know our military forces compared to their military force wasn't like that at all god says i'm giving you this land so how you go, if you're, if you're going with me in your heart, you will know that I'm giving you this land and you'll come back with joy saying the land's full of milk and honey. But it's, it's only Joshua and Caleb who come back with a report to say the land's full of milk and honey. We can take these people because God's promised us the land. They weren't arrogant about their military prowess. They were saying we have a God who will give this land to us no matter how unattainable it seems. But 10, of course, were faithless. And because of that, and because of the disobedience of that generation, they wandered around the desert for 40 years. And it's only Joshua and Caleb among all of those of God's people who entered into the promised land. But there's a huge encouragement here. You you might feel in your church at the minute, you're the only one with any life about you. Maybe you look around you, you're in a church where the majority of people are not Christians, and then the Christians who are there are, are colder than nice to you. You're the only one who's doing anything for Jesus Christ. Don't stop. Set an agenda for the church. Maybe others will follow you, maybe they won't. But Joshua and Caleb set an agenda throughout all the 40 years surrounded by people who were criticizing Moses, who were being disobedient, who were grumbling as they went. Joshua and Caleb stood out and God kept faithful to them as they kept faithful to him. And they were the ones who entered the joys of the promised land eventually. Hang in there if you're the only one following Christ or one or two of you around. Um, keep spurring each other on if there's a small group of you within a church that you're following jesus christ and the rest are well they're playing at church keep following him the promised land is coming incredible thing about the end of the book of uh numbers is that you know israel's been a mess throughout the book and uh then um the, the, the king a king that's that the israelites are about to to go into war against King Balak, he's a bit scared of the Israelites and he hires this prophet called Balaam to prophesy against Israel. And you kind of think, well, if you don't need a prophet, a false prophet to prophesy against Israel, God could do it himself. These people have been disobedient to God throughout the whole book. How he has kept patient with them, I do not know. And yet as Balaam is paid by the king to prophesy evil and curses against Israel, God changes his words around. And this false prophet Balaam starts to prophesy blessings on the camp of Israel. This is so extraordinary how beautiful are the tents of Jacob, he says. You think there's nothing beautiful about those tents. Those tents are full of disobedient people. But no, God is still at the end of a book of absolute, a catalog of disobedience and grumbling god is still ready to bless his people the salvation project is still very much on course god will take a new generation now of israelites into the promised land because he has sworn it by his own name he swore it to abraham he swore it to isaac and jacob he swore it to Moses. i will take these people into the promised land it's his name that's an honor and god always keeps his promises so no matter how disobedient israel have been god's grace is manifest at the end of numbers saying how beautiful are the camps of jacob and We start to see in Balaam's oracle these beautiful minders of of a star that will arise from Jacob pointing to the future Messiah who's coming. So even in these early books of the Pentateuch, there are pointers to Messiah, the star that will arise. And uh, just as the people of Israel will take the promised land in their day, so this Messiah will lead his new covenant people to their promised land as well. The promises are magnificent. So God is working with a disobedient church today. You know, even at our best, we are faltering, aren't we? And yet God's salvation plan is still on course. He has sworn it by his name that whoever trusts in Jesus Christ, he will take to glory. He has sworn it by his own character and reputation. That's the strongest thing in the universe. He will take us to our home. Right, skip through numbers. I was hoping to mention the bronze snake, but I hope you all know that story. Um, The people are grumbling God sends snakes, they bite the people, the people are dying. Moses says, What am I gonna do, God? God says, Well, take get a bronze snake, put it on a pole. And if anybody just looks, even in their pain, as the poisons cursing through their body, they just look at this snake and just trust, believe my word, look at the snake, they will be healed. And of course they look and they're healed. And John chapter three will make this magnificent comment as Moses lifted up the snurman in the desert, so the Son of Man will be lifted up, that whoever believes in him will not perish but have eternal life this is utterly glorious why was the snake on a pole the snake was the problem the snake was the one that was biting but the snake is hung on a pole reminding us that how is jesus compared to a snake jesus is the one hanging on the cross just like the snake was hanging on the pole jesus is compared to the snake because he becomes the great sin bearer as we look at the cross we look at our sin being nailed there it's a picture of the ugliness the horror of our sin but jesus is dealing with our sin as we see the horror of it and if we just look to him that's all faith involves looking to jesus believing god's promise if you look to my son hanging there for your sins on the cross you'll be saved you don't have to have Do some marvelous, um, great act of sacrifice. You just need to look to him. Look to him and you'll be saved. Like the thief on the cross who had lived a rotten life, looked to Jesus at the last moment of his life, said, Lord, remember me when you enter your kingdom. Jesus says, today you will walk with me in the streets of paradise. Isn't the gospel incredible? Look, look, look and live. There is life for a look at the crucified one. I'm really bringing out the old hymns tonight, aren't I? Beautiful story. And again, let's remind ourselves moses is writing a story about a bronze snake in the desert it really happened he doesn't have a clue how beautifully it will point to what jesus christ will do what 1400 years later on a cross outside jerusalem that is how beautiful and supernaturally the bible was put together right we are quarter past eight we are pressing on we are into deuteronomy i'm going to spend very little time in deuteronomy Um, Not because Deuteronomy isn't a great book. It's fantastic. In fact, a lot of the best teaching of the Old Testament comes from Deuteronomy. But we're not going to spend a long time on it because it doesn't move the story forward. The book of Deuteronomy, basically, you divide it to two, Deuteros and Nomos. Deuteros means second. Nomos means law. So Deuteronomy is the second presentation of the law of God to a new generation of God's people who are in the plains of Moab, about to enter the promised land. It's a second law reminding them with with quite some verve and passion this time. It's more passionate than Exodus, for example, when the law was first given. Moses is is saying to the people, look, I've seen your ancestors and their bodies were strewn across the desert. Um, Here's the law of God. If, If you keep this law, you will live. If you don't keep it, you will die. Please, my people, listen to me. You're about to enter the promised land. I can't enter it with you. Remember, of course, that Moses dies at the end of the book of Deuteronomy. So, of course, he couldn't have written the last chapter. There must have been another editor writing that chapter anyway. um, Moses is passionately saying to the people, remember the law of God. And Moses now sums up the law of God, not with 10 negative commandments. Don't do this, don't do this, don't do this. But he sums it up with what we call the great commandment, the Shema. The word Shema is just a Hebrew word meaning hear, hear, O Israel, the Lord your God, the Lord is one. So even though we are trinitarian believe in father son and holy spirit that does not negate the fact that god is a unity he is one person like a a team well i'm not going to get into the problems of trinity versus one god but there is one god in three persons the lord your god the lord is one you are to love the lord your god with all your heart and soul with all your mind and with all your strength and you are to love your neighbor as yourself so, so God was saying here in this key line, which is probably the single most important verse in the whole of the Bible. This sums up the whole message of the Bible. Love the Lord your God with all your heart, soul, mind, and strength, and love your neighbor as yourself. It's repeated five times, two times in the Old Testament, twice in the New Testament. Mark's gospel, Jesus says, you know, what are the commands? And the summary is, of course, the Shema, love God with all your heart. Um, what does the Shema look like? Well, love God with all your heart and soul. So Loving God involves your emotions, um, how you feel about God. We're, we're scared of emotions, and we don't want emotionalism, emotions for their own sake, like you know, turning a worship service into a rock concert. It's not, it's not emotions built up for their own sake, but we are we are passionately in love with God, in passionate love with Jesus Christ. You remember later on, um, David comes into the to Jerusalem with the Ark of the Covenant, and he is so so alive so enjoying god as he brings the ark into jerusalem he dances he can't hold back can't help himself and his wife michelle is looking through a window at her husband and she just you just acting like an idiot david how can you possibly act like that and shame me in front of all these people but god is thinking isn't that wonderful here's this man out of my after my own heart who loves me so much he cannot keep it in That's what it means. Love God with all your heart and soul. Love him with everything you've got, every emotion of your being. I scare myself sometimes when, you know, I'm a football fan. My team in a very important game scores a goal in the last minute to win the game. And I am cock a hoop. I jump out of my seat. I scare my wife sometimes. You can ask her about that. She doesn't want to sit beside me in a football match when my team's playing. How can I feel like that about a football team and then sit with a stony face on a Sunday? Um, it just cannot be and I've got to speak to myself about this often I'm coming to a worship service and I'm kind of judging the service you know is these the songs I like or are these the songs I don't like that's a me-centered form of worship am I liking these or am I not liking these rather than thinking I'm going to use these words to direct my passionate soul towards the God of my love love the lord your god with all your heart and soul love him with all your mind as well we are not just to love him emotionally without any content we love him intellectually as well that's why you're at any sgt at least i hope it is we're not here to just gain head knowledge but paul keeps on saying we need to grow in knowledge how we avoid false teaching for example is by knowing in detail what true teaching is so that we can recognize the false teaching While we don't want to be intellectual for its own sake, God wants to invade our intellects, And we're the beneficiaries now of great men like Augustine and Luther and Calvin who who took the Bible and, and opened it up with their genius and allowed us to see the riches, the riches of Christ. We cannot know Christ without engaging our intellect fully. Or else why would the Bible talk about mining the riches of Christ? We sometimes delight in people say, oh, she or he has got a very simple faith. That's fine. There can be great sincerity in a simple faith. But God doesn't want us to remain in a simple faith. He wants us to go deeper. Like the writer to the Hebrews again, he says, you know, it's time you moved past the basic teachings about repentance, about baptism, and about the final judgment. Those were considered the basic teachings that those well-taught Christians should have moved way beyond long ago. So you're going to think, well, what were the deeper teachings then? Let's use our intellect, love God with all our mind, and then let's love God um, with all our, our strength, with all our bodies, our, our physicality. So when you've been in church on a Sunday and you come home and you're just you know, you're absolutely exhausted, you've been on the T-Rota, you've, you've done a Sunday school class, you've been involved in an afternoon outreach somewhere, then there's the evening service and you just think, this is the day of rest? That's a good joke and then you crumple into your sofa at night, you can say, you can look up to heaven and say, God, I have loved you with all my strength tonight. And of course, this whole Shema I love God with heart and soul, with mind and strength. It's not, well, I'm quite good at the strength bit, but I don't need to worry about the heart and soul bit. No, it's it's the combination. Do you love God with all your heart and soul? I want to grow in my emotional connection, my relationship, personal relationship with God. I want to love him with all my mind. I want to study the scriptures. I want to make them my daily bread. I'm in the scriptures. My nose is in the text, as John Piper says. And then I want to love him with all my strength. I want to be energetic. I don't just sit in a Bible study for the rest of my days. I want to be out and about in social action projects that show the kingdom of God and its beauty. I want to be involved in evangelism. I want to be involved in committees, not always exciting, but I want to use my energies, use my strength for the sake of the kingdom of God. That's when we know we love him. And then, of course, to love your neighbor as yourself. Love God with everything you've got. Love your neighbor as much as you love yourself. Um, You can't love God and hate your brother, as 1 John says, how beautifully it's put. And in how many churches? There are people who are praising God with their lips, with, you know, beautiful, flowery language, and then they're cursing about their brother across the border, the same brother whom Christ died for. How can we live like that? Love God with all your heart and love your neighbor as you love yourself. And before you think of neighbors outside the church, you are often, let's face it, easier to love than the ones inside the church. Let's think about our brothers and sisters in Christ. Is there a relationship you need to make right? You need to take the first step here. Obviously, it takes two to tango and sometimes you make the first step and the person doesn't reciprocate. You can't do anything about that. But have you taken the first step? Have you got off your high horse? Have you humbled yourself? Have you left your gift at the altar and gone and made right with your brother and sister? It's part of the great commandment. This is not, you know, some subsection of Christianity. This is Christianity. Love God with all your heart. Love your neighbor as yourself. We could go on and on with this, couldn't we? Right, that's all I'm going to say about Deuteronomy. Deuteronomy. Um, We're going to go into Joshua now. Boy, we're doing well. It's only 20 past eight. Um, Into Joshua now. And basically, Deuteronomy, you were right at the edge of the promised land. And now Joshua is the conquest of the promised land. So if we can turn there in our sheets, um, Joshua takes the promised land is is where we're going. Now, of course, one of the big issues about... um, Deuteronomy becoming Joshua is that um, Moses the leader dies. At the end of Deuteronomy, Moses the leader dies. Can we move the page forward here? Moses the leader dies, and Joshua now is the new kid on the block. And, and Moses has this aura about him. There was no one more humble than Moses, we were told, the most humble man on the earth, and he had led Israel for years, and through all the stubbornness of their generation, he had been gentle, he had been humble, he had led the people in the hardest days. What an act to follow. And you can imagine Joshua trembling. I mean, Moses had set Joshua apart from early days, which makes you think about church succession, for example. I think it's not a very healthy situation in churches where kind of there's a senior pastor, a charismatic senior pastor, the Moses figure for a long period of time. There's no thought of developing other leaders. It's just we come to sit at the feet of our charismatic pastor, and then one day he'll leave or he'll drop dead. And then what do you do? If there's been no leadership planning, then everybody gets to get us, oh, we better form a committee and we better look to someone outside. And, you know, we're in Aberdeen and we've got to call somebody from Portsmouth to come up and pastor us. Somebody who doesn't know us at all. We don't know him at all. comes from an entirely different culture and so on. I'm not saying that that doesn't work. In lots of churches that has worked. But is it not better to be training leaders underneath you as Moses was doing with Joshua? We're told, of course, that Moses... would would be praying, he would be in in the tent of meeting, he would be interacting with God, and Joshua would stand just outside the tent, almost listening and longing for the kind of relationship that Moses had with God, hoping when Moses came out from being with God that some of the glory would fall on him. That was Joshua's leadership preparation. It was intentional leadership preparation so that when Moses died, they weren't saying, oh my goodness, Moses is dead, we're right at the edge of the promised land, now we're in trouble. They weren't in trouble because Joshua was ready to go. And in the early chapters of Joshua, God then, um, in a sense, solidifies Joshua's leadership. So we find Joshua doing things that were linked with Moses. So you'll know one of the early stories of Joshua is... um, they have the Ark of the Covenant, they're carrying the Ark of the Covenant, and they come to the, the Jordan River. And they put their foot in the Jordan River and the waters open. What does that remind you of? It reminds you of the fact that Moses had opened the great sea for the Israel to pass through and the Egyptians to be founded and so on. This was God saying, just as I was with Moses, I'm going to be with this Joshua now. You follow his leadership. Follow his leadership. Submit to it. And, of course, this had been years in preparing for Joshua to be the man who took over. Um, from Moses. Uh, it's one of my hobby horses, training younger leaders. Um, we've tried to do a lot of it here um, in the hope that when a pastor moves on, there's people ready to, to, to go. And of course, this was such a crucial moment in Israel's history, entering the promised land that he did the right man. And of course, Joshua, the name Joshua is the Hebrew name for Jesus. It's Yeshua. If you've listened to a, a Jesus film where they use the original Hebrew, you'll hear Yeshua all the time, exactly the same name. Joshua is the Old Testament Jesus. And at the beginning, you know, chapter one be strong and have a good courage, Joshua. I know it's a daunting thing for you to take over from Moses, but just as I was with Moses, so I will be with you. Be strong and courageous. And maybe God's providing an opportunity for you in a new ministry, perhaps, maybe a new job somewhere, and you're feeling overwhelmed by it. Um, maybe you're a pastor of a church and you've taken over from somebody who's considered an absolute legend in that church. How do I take over from this man? Well, Joshua actually was more successful in that sense than Moses ever was. He led the people into the promised land and, and we're told that Israel followed the Lord for all the years of Joshua. You couldn't say that for Moses. Um, people were, were disobedient during Moses' day for a lot of the time, but they followed God all the days of Joshua. So God was with Joshua powerfully um, despite the fact that he was scared to take over from Moses. Interestingly, here, what we need to get into is how God prepares his people for war. So, remember, they've become an army um, in numbers. Now they're about to be full of battle. And the whole book of Joshua, the first half certainly, is all about battle, a lot of blood and guts again. It's been a controversial book, of course. Richard Dawkins has talked about Joshua to say, you know, how evil, or wicked, and violent this God is. We have to remember when we think about the idea of holy war, Israel in the Old Testament is a very different position to what we are in as New Testament Christians. Israel was a unique, distinct geographical nation. It was a theocracy under God's guidance. And you'll remember God had said to Abraham hundreds of years before Joshua came along, Abraham, I'm looking at the Canaanites, I'm looking at the way they live, the sins of the Canaanites, they disgust me but I'm going to be patient with them. I'm going to give them a couple of centuries to turn around. They were doing child sacrifices and all this gross stuff. If you really understood the Canaanites, their sexual immorality, their, their um, violence, I mean, they were a horrible, they were a horrible people group. And God had said to Abraham hundreds of years earlier, I'm going to judge these people. And he used Israel as his judicial arm. Now to be very careful before we say the church can do that today. The church cannot do that today. Yes, God gives governments authority to wield the sword romans 13 tells us that but the church today is not one single unified nation like israel was we have not been told to use the sword in fact paul is very clear about this our weapons are love joy and peace and all of that kind of thing so that is how we fight the holy war today there's still war of course we're still battling against the serpent and all of his demons and we need to use um the weapons that god gives us and of course ephesians 6 will talk about that um the word the spirit prayer um salvation the breastplate of righteousness all of that kind of thing our personal holiness our confidence in our salvation our readiness to take the gospel of peace to other people prayer that guards all the all the armor we are told how to fight our holy war today but old testament israel is a very different case and of course this is the way ancient nations used to behave they used to Um, have wars with each other all the time, take each other's land. and Israel was part of this, but God was using Israel to judge the Canaanites um, for all the evils over many centuries. And God has the right to do that. God is the judge of all the earth. Anyway, um, we look at the preparation of the army for battle now, preparation and consecration. What do they do? How would you prepare troops to take on the huge city of Jericho with this awesome wall in front of it? What you certainly wouldn't think of doing is Um, to circumcise them all. (laughs) But that's exactly what happens. Here's your preparation to take Jericho. I want you all circumcised to show that you are holy to the Lord. Your military strategy here is to be holy, to consecrate yourselves to me. And then when you come to Jericho, I don't want you to think, you know, well, let's send our archers up here. Let's send our bowmen over here. No, I want you to walk around the wall seven times shouting. And then the seventh time, the walls are going to fall down. You you could just imagine the soldiers thinking, right, second time, third time, fourth time, what are we doing here, guys? This is just ridiculous. And all that's keeping him going to go to the seventh time is the command of God. That's what the church should be like. All that's keeping us going is the command of God, winning the spiritual war by his strategies love, joy, peace, patience. I mean, if you went to Frederick Nietzsche, one of the great philosophers, when the the darkest minded men of our times he he despised Christianity because of its weakness how can you win anything through love joy peace and patience people who show love joy peace and patience they're the ones that get discarded not the ones that win and Nietzsche despised Jesus Christ because he was so weak nailed to a cross he says what a terrible place the world will be in if we all follow Jesus example and, and delivered ourselves up to die for other people I mean that's disgraceful um nietzsche was a man of power he one of his famous books was called the superman that's what he thought the human race should be survival of the fittest the very darwinian ethic behind it um and yet jesus says no you fight my way love joy peace patience gentleness kindness meekness, self-control um the meek shall inherit the earth blessed are those who hunger and thirst after righteousness for they shall be filled we follow christ through the meekness of the Holy Spirit, and God's power works through clay jars like us to reveal His glory to other people. And that's how men are literally grasped out of darkness and brought into the kingdom of light. That glorious thing happens through our weakness and our meekness. As Michael Card said, God's most awesome work was done through the frailty of His Son. And it's as meek Christians with humility. Um, show love straight love and peace and patience and gentleness to a watching world that is how the kingdom of god grows we do things god's way you remember of course after they defeat jericho there's this horrible story of ai where the holiness of god is brought into relief again i'll finish with this before our five and a break but um basically um basically um they, they have conquered jericho this huge um, fortified city they've taken it down so they think well AI's next just a little city just a little town up there we don't need too many men for this joshua clearly hadn't prayed about this hadn't sought the lord's face he just said let's just send a few men up to ai and of course uh, they are absolutely routed and the men come back the those that are left because most of them have been killed and joshua says what's gone wrong here we took jericho so easily why when we should be taking ai in our sleep why have we been roundly defeated and of course, God shows Joshua that there is sin in the camp. There's a guy called Achan, and uh, he has uh, not—he has disobeyed God. God's told people to to devote a lot of the booty, a lot of the the wonderful. Um, Clothing and jewels and all that they have got from Jericho. They are to devote them to the Lord They are to give their best to God There's in a sense giving uh, one of the first examples of giving in the Old Testament We give our best to God they were supposed to devote that to the Lord. Achan hadn't done that He had lied about it. he had buried treasure under his tent that belonged to God and His family seemed to be accomplices. You, you the father figure can't bury something under the tent Um, these rich Babylonian robes without the family knowing about it and so this awful scene where all the tribes are told to gather and uh, the lot falls on Achan and his family. Achan confesses his sin and what does God say, okay Achan no problem, thanks for saying sorry, let's move out of here. No. Um, God instructs the people, not just Joshua, the people. Have to pick up stones and lay out Achan and his whole family in front of them and stone them to death and then pile a heap of rubble on them um, as a warning. One thing we need to discover is that each time there is a new movement of God, a new work of God, and here was a new work of God coming to the Promised Land, how important it was that Israel was holy at this entry point of the promised land. And so when Achan was unholy, it led to death. The same thing earlier on, actually, when The worship system is started off in Leviticus Um, and Nadab and Abihu are the two first priests and they offer unholy fire. We're told they did not follow God's regulations. What happened to them? Drop dead. Um, As the ark is coming into Jerusalem with Uzzah, who is the Levite who's meant to carry it and it slips from his hand and he goes to touch it, he knew he should not have touched it. What happens? This new move of God bringing the ark into Jerusalem, Uzzah falls dead. The early church, Christ has died, risen from the dead, Holy Spirit's been poured out. These are dramatic days for the church. Ananias and Sapphira lie. What happens to them? Drop dead. It's not to say that God kills on the spot all his disobedient people or else you and I wouldn't be here tonight. But at the beginning of each of these new moves of God, God wanted to say in an uncompromising way, I am holy and you depart from my holy standards at your peril. And we as a church need to recover something of the fear of the Lord. We're in the middle of Joshua now. Um, And uh, one point that we really need to raise, there's a lot of blood and guts, as I've said in Joshua. The Bible doesn't hide that at all. There is war. And sometimes we wince at God's commands to Joshua when he says, wipe out a city. He really means wipe out a city. I don't want to hear a woman or a child left. And I want you to take the king of the city and I want you to almost nail him to the gates of the city. I mean, that's the kind of context we find in Joshua. Why, why? Now we can ask the question in terms of, God and violence. Clearly, um, God does violent things. We can see that in Noah and the ark. We will see that at the final judgment as well. God must deal with sin ruthlessly because sin is so heinous. This is the only way to deal with sin. And, of course, throughout Joshua, God is wanting to teach Israel, I want you to get rid of these Canaanites because they have Canaanite gods. They have ways of living that if you start to intermarry with Canaanites, if you leave them alive and their cultures next to yours, you will be compromised. And, of course, that's what happens. So God telling Joshua to be utterly ruthless and wipe out the Canaanites is akin to God telling you and me, take the sins in your life and be utterly ruthless with them, wipe them out. I was hearing of a preacher who used to feel tempted when he was staying in hotel rooms all the time. He was preaching in various places, great preacher, man of God, but realized that the channel flicking at night when he had come home from a busy day preaching, channel flicking at night was not a good thing. So what he decided to do was, every time I'm going to a hotel in advance, I'm gonna phone the hotel lobby and I'm gonna say, I want you to take the TV out of my room. And of course, every time he does that, the, TV lo- the, the, the lobby people are saying, what do you mean take it out of your room nobody has ever asked to do that it's almost embarrassing to ask that but the preacher asked every single time take the tv out of the room now that is one little example of being ruthless with sin not saying here's a sin i have in my life and i'll kind of play with it a little bit but i know not to take it too far and once i take it too far i'll pull back you can't pull back that's the thing about sins. it's addictive it's like spiritual caffeine like drinking coke too much if you have a bit of coke you always want more if you have a bit of coffee you always want more drug addicts will say the same but sin is deadlier than all those things put together it is a drug and it will have you or you will have it those are the only two options and so God telling Joshua to wipe out man woman child cattle sheep all of that that may cause moral ethical dilemmas for us today but the bottom line is he's telling us don't play around with sin be utterly ruthless like joseph when he's being tempted by potiphar's wife he just runs he gets out of there he doesn't even think how should i respond to this lady this is just danger i am out of here and a lot of young men and women i mean the statistics for women are just as bad i mean christians dealing with pornography today the statistics are fearsome not just among church members but among pastors as well and we just need to get out of there What's your version of getting out of there? Is it having one of these um, accountability partners where he can see what's going on on your computer screen? Is that the way to do it? Um, I know a pastor um, who told his son, if I ever catch you looking at anything, I'm going to display what you have been looking at on the church website. Now that's a little bit OTT and I'm not suggesting you do that. All of that to say, the pastor was trying to teach his son You've got to be ruthless with this. Kill it before it kills you. All Israel is repeated throughout Joshua. It's so important that Israel is together because they're involved in war. And, of course, there's nothing worse if you're in the middle of war than if there's interior divisions. And there's this very strange story, actually, before they ever get into the promised land, when land's getting getting allocated, um, there are the two and a half tribes who want to stay, have their own part of land outside of Israel. And it creates huge consternation because how can you compromise all Israel together? And there's going to be a war between the nine and a half tribes and the two and a half tribes. How dare you two and a half tribes not come with us to gain the land of Israel with us? The two and a half tribes say, no, 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 you've got it all wrong. We're going to come and fight with you. We're going to fight as all Israel together. And then when we've won the victory in the promised land, then we'll come back and claim our land. And it was only then that Joshua says, yes, I will allow you to do that. I will allow you to have your own land outside the nation of Israel. But... You must come and fight with us as one man. That's how important all Israel was. That's how important a united church is. How on earth can we take a gospel to a lost world if we're fighting among each other? Doesn't Paul say that? How disgraceful the Corinthians were taking lawsuits out against each other. We get so close to other Christians. We get involved in them in all kinds of ways. We all feel passionate about what church should look like. We're bound to rub each other up the wrong way. We're bound to have relationship conflicts. But sorting out your relationship conflict is not just what one person is doing to another person so that they can live at peace with each other. The whole gospel power of a church depends on that one person getting right with that one person. What are you willing to do to get right so that the whole church, so that all Israel, to put it in Joshua's terms, is together fighting as one man for the sake of the gospel. So there's a lot of that in, uh, in Joshua. Now, just to say chapters 1 to 8 of Joshua covers a very short space of time. Chapters 9 to 12 covers a much larger space of time. But we just get summaries, um, the campaign in the south. So basically, Israel came in the middle of, uh, the, the Israelites came in the middle of Canaan. Then they went south. The campaign in the south is described in chapters 9 to 10, where you have that famous scene of the sun standing still for Joshua, and that incredible line. He was, you know, a man sought God, a man of flesh sought God, and God let the sun stand still for him so he could win his battle the power of prayer that God listens to the feeble utterings of of our mouths and he could do more than all we ask or imagine even to the extent of making the sun stand still so that Israel could complete their victory and of course there was the Gibeonite deception part of it where the Gibeonites come up on the treaty with Israel um this these people are going to be a thorn in Israel's flesh they come and and pretend to be weary and, and just waiting for Israel to to take them on and they, and they there was a compromise for israel here as they built a relationship with the gibeonites and it's a warning for us compromising again entering into relationships that god would not have for us all of this in the campaign in the south but it's told much more briefly uh, and then the campaign in the north so they've gone middle south then north it's a list of victories it seems like quite a boring chapter but obviously if you were israel at the time it'd be a very exciting chapter um like the oscar ceremony here's what you've won and the oscar goes too and it's actually a reminder for us When we enter our promised land, known as heaven, there will be rewards. I remember a singer, Keith Green, I loved his music, but uh, he said in one of his songs, Lord, when I'm doing well as a Christian, help me to never seek a prize for my reward is giving glory to you. Now, sounds all nice, but the Bible offers us rewards. We're meant to go after these rewards. Paul says, I beat my body and make it my slave so that after preaching to others, I myself will not lose out on the prize. And the prize for Paul is more than just salvation. Every Christian gets salvation, but there will be rewards handed out, crowns of righteousness, crowns of glory, the soul winner's crown. You could actually analyze all the crowns in the New Testament, seven different ones mentioned. And uh, we are meant to go after these crowns um, because a crowning day is coming. And as you see the list of victories in Joshua 11 and 12, one day we will stand and say, what have been the victories in our lives what in our lives has been gold, silver, and precious stones and not wood, hay, and stubble that's easily burned up? What have you persevered in? Who have you built up in Christ? Who have you brought to Christ? What have, you, have you been a brilliant church member? Have you been a constant encouragement and spur on to other believers? Are you building with gold, silver, and precious stones knowing that you are building on holy things? This is the kingdom of God. This is the kingdom of Jesus Christ. If you build with gold, silver, and precious stones, you will be rewarded with The prizes of God, which Paul says, far outweigh the prizes that were given to the athletes at the Olympics of its day. So, prizes will be rewarded to us as well. Chapters thirteen to twenty-one of Joshua. Again, it reads boring to us. It's uh, just the basic this distribution of the land now that they've conquered the land between among the twelve tribes. But of course, again, it's a picture of us of heaven, and this is our inheritance. It's kept constantly called our inheritance and Peter will take up Joshua's phrase and say we have an inheritance beyond the stars that can never perish spoil or fade being kept in heaven for us that's what to live for not the passing treasures of this life lay up treasure for yourself in in heaven says Jesus there is an inheritance for you beyond the stars it is being kept for you and you are being kept for it that's what we're living for and the distribution among the 12 tribes reminds us of that Of course, we're told that some land is still to be conquered. Um, It seems, as you read through Joshua, that that Israel is victorious everywhere they go. By the beginning of Judges, you realize, actually, they haven't been, and they haven't wiped out everybody. There are still Canaanites around who then become a thorn in Israel's flesh. They should have wiped them out, but they didn't. There's land still to be conquered. There is compromise in Israel. And, of course, wherever there's compromise in our lives as Christians as well, it just leads to trouble down the line. It's inevitable. Whatever we don't deal with, will start dealing with us. Um, and just to mention here about the Levites here, point four, Levites inherit the Lord himself. There's this thing about almost full-time Christian workers throughout the Old Testament. The Levites were the priests and they were not given any part of the land because they were promised the Lord himself. He is your treasure, your very great reward. That's what God said to Abraham originally. He says a similar kind of thing to the Levites. God himself is their inheritance. So, Just a challenge to any of you, if you're in NASGT thinking, you know, maybe God might be calling me into full or part-time gospel ministry, two things I can promise you. Number one, if you enter into full-time or part-time gospel ministry, it will be tough. It'll it'll drag the very best out of you and bring you to your knees like never before if you enter gospel ministry. And number two, you will not regret a second of it um, because you will inherit the Lord himself and all that that means. Right. We are done with Joshua. I'm going to move on now, and we're going to go into Judges for the last 12 minutes. Let's go into Judges. Um, Judges is a very visual book in that you've got this sheet as well where I've pointed out the cycles of Judges. If you get this sheet into your head, you basically understood the story of Judges. Basically, Israel has not overwhelmed all its opponents. There are still lots of them left, and Israel starts to compromise with these people who are left. Um, and Judges shows the military and spiritual decline of the tribes. That's the story. It's a very sad story. It's a downward spiral. But basically what happens is with all these foreigners still around in Israel, they haven't been dealt with. And then, of course, they grow again, and their culture merges with Israelite culture and so on. We have this cycle, and you'll see it on the sheet. So Israel will disobey God. They'll sin in some way, which means that God himself will release an oppressor on Israel. It's God who does this. God allows an oppressor to come. And while Israel is under oppression, they cry out to God. That's what we do when we're in trouble. We cry out to God. Would that we had not disobeyed in the first place. But every time we're in trouble, we cry out to God. What does God do? God's merciful again and again and again. There are 12 judges. In fact, Samuel will be the 13th. But there are 12 judges throughout the book of Judges, all of them representing times when Israel cried out to God and he sent a savior judge and savior are pretty much the same word all of these judges are saviors of israel so god raises up a deliverer or a savior israel is delivered then israel has a time of peace under that particular judge and then it never learned its lesson it goes back to disobedience again and you'll notice here all the judges named on one side othniel ehud shamdar and so on and then we're told how long they judged for so that's a period of time that Israel's at peace they've been delivered and so on and then they go back to their same old ways again Uh, The book of Judges lasts a long time, 400 years or so again of Israelite history is here, condensed into one book. But it's a downward spiral as we go. And it's this cycle, constant cycle. You've got to ask yourself as a Christian, am I in this constant cycle as well? When will I ever learn? I've disobeyed God I feel an oppression in my life. God's disciplining me. I cry out to God for help. I see his deliverance. I could note them down in a prayer diary all the times he's delivered, all the times he's shown up in my life. And then as soon as I'm at peace again, things are going cushy again, work's going well, family life's good, church life's good, I'm back to my disobedient ways, my careless ways, my compromised ways. And I go round and round in circles like the people in the desert. Never, in a sense, Israel entered within the promised land, the same kind of desert wandering around as they had done before they ever got there. This is typical of the people of God. So as we look at some of the teaching now of Judges, um, and we move beyond the cycle, we'll we'll discover each of these saviors. We hone in on the characters of each of these saviors, and we discover that each savior is unusual. And we're meant to discover their unusualness. So for example, Ehud, the first one, he is left-handed. That's considered very strange in Israel. And he's a Benjamite, which was the smallest of the tribe. Remember, Benjamin was the youngest of Jacob's sons. So Ehud, a left-handed Benjamite, he's a judge. Um, Gideon was from the weakest tribe. You remember that? He's called, rather sarcastically by the angel, he's called a mighty warrior, but he's actually hiding in a wine press to making sure that the enemy cannot see him. That's the kind of warrior he is. But, of course, by the power of the Spirit, he becomes a mighty warrior. But he's from the weakest tribe. That's what's unusual. And Samson, the very last of the judges, um, we often think of Samson as the strong man, but he's actually the most pathetic picture of Israel. Um, he has been privileged from birth, Samson. You remember he has a Nazarite vow, don't cut his hair and so on. He is set apart for God just as Israel has been set apart for God. God chose them as a nation out of Egypt, called them out of Egypt to be his, his own son. He is, they've been chosen. They've had a special relationship with God since day one. But just as Samson is reckless, Israel is reckless as well. Samson looks outwardly impressive and mighty, but um, he's a liar. He's a fraudster. He's a womanizer. He compromises himself with women, just as Israel compromises itself with the nations around. Remember later on in the the Minor Prophets when Hosea and, and people like Hosea, they call Israel a whore, a prostitute. Remember, Hosea is called to marry Gomer the prostitute so that Hosea the prophet will understand this is what it's like for God to live with Israel. Israel is prostituting itself out to other nations, worshipping Baal, worshipping Asherah, worshipping all the gods of the nations around rather than the true God. And God is a, a husband who feels intense jealousy because his people are constantly wandering away to other things. For us today, that could be money, that could be sex, that could be power we know the idols around materialism one of the big ones that we kind of leave to fester we don't care how we spend our money if we've got the money let's spend it that's that's how we live today um and maybe god's going to bring aberdeen to its knees um oil was already in trouble and now we've got coronavirus and lots of people are going to lose their jobs and while god grieves over that we also need to be aware as a church that we will not live by mammon alone (laughs) money is not our god god is and if god takes away the financial security and the comfort that we've known will we still follow him will he oppress us in that way so that we will cry out to him again that's one of the questions of our day all of these issues arise in in joshua in judges there are these unusual saviors and uh of course The unusual saviour is pointing to the fact that Jesus himself will be an unusual saviour, will won't? but he will be sent from heaven. He will be born of a virgin. How unusual is that? He will be born to a poor, unknown, unheard of family in Nazareth. Nobody, can anything good come from Nazareth? What a surprising way that God chooses to save the world. And of course, his way of saving the world is by that man brought up by the son of Mary and Joseph in the little town of Nazareth. He ends up uh, dying as a criminal against the Roman state um, criticized as, as being um, proclaiming to be God by the Jewish nation and crucified naked to a cross that is God's unusual plan of salvation that's how you know it's God's plan of salvation because it's unusual so we'll realize also throughout the book of Judges that each of these saviors are flawed you remember even Gideon, who's right at the centre of the book, and seems to be the best of the saviours. Yet um, they present the people present Gideon with this ephod, and of course the people start to worship the ephod, and Gideon himself has problems, and and all of these judges are compromised in some way. Jephthah himself is the son of um, a, a a prostitute relationship earlier on in life, and Jephthah makes his promise to kill the first one he sees when he comes back from battle and of course it's his own daughter horrific stories of these judges who made foolish decisions they were wonderful saviors in one sense but incomplete saviors and the whole of judges having a series of incomplete saviors is of course asking the question who can be the ultimate savior of the people of God so the weakness of the judges points us to the strength of Jesus Christ the man after God's own heart who never let God down in any way shape or form at the end of Judges, which we try to forget about, Judges 17 to 21, it's like an appendix to the book, such an important appendix. In Judges 17 to 21, you're saying to yourself, look how far Israel has gone down. We have Micah, this man who's got his own shrine. He has private religion. He's got his own God, like homemade religion. He's not going to follow the official religion of Israel, God and how he has revealed himself. He's going to do his own thing. He's going uh, to provide his own spirituality. Isn't that so much like people today? Um, there's not one truth out there. Let's all follow our own truths. Let's make up our own religion for ourselves, whether it's New Age or Zoroastrianism. I mean, you look around Hollywood at some of the, I mean, they're all spiritual in some way, but some of their spiritualities are just weird and warped. But it's like Micah creating his own little private religion, a God that he has made that he can control rather than a God who controls him. We all want that, a God that we can control rather than a God who controls us. This is how bad Israel's got, you have the story of the Levite and his concubine. I mean, incredible that a priest would have a concubine. And then the horrific story of uh, this, this prostitute left for dead. And um, it is uh, it, the, the people, the, the, the tribes of Israel say, look how bad it's got. And they chop up the body of this uh, prostitute and they send it around all the tribes of israel to say look how far away we have wandered from god's plan. look at what a sick depraved people we are and that's the end of judges and you're, you're saying uh, the repeated phrase at the end of judges is in those days israel had no king everyone did what was right in their own eyes so judges are saying we need a king we need a man after god's own heart who will bring god's people together and lead them towards god and towards glory Um, It was moral chaos during the time of the judges. No one leader taking the people anywhere, lots of different tribes doing their own thing, becoming depraved as they did it. And eventually there's sexual immorality. There is false religion um, and there is prostitution. Everyone did what was right in their own eyes. Um, I don't know if you've read the book by William Golding, Lord of the Flies, where these kind of private school boys end up in a jungle. And we kind of think, well, these private school boys will remember all their manners and education. But the more and more they're in the jungle, um, the law of the survival of the fittest sets in and they all start killing each other and doing unspeakable things. These little boys from polite homes, if left to their own devices, that's what they'll become. And that's who we are by nature and by choice. If left to our own devices without God, without the Holy Spirit within us, we would become depraved like the people of Judges at the end of that book. And we're left asking, who is the king who can lead us? We need a God. We need a king who can lead us to glory. So, um, let me sneak in Ruth in one minute. Um, Ruth, we're told, the beginning of, at the beginning of Ruth, we are told that Ruth happens during the days of the judges. Now we need to go back to Ruth. Ruth is just at the bottom of the page. Ruth happens during the days of the judges. So in the darkness of the judges, as Judges ends, there's this beautiful story, which is a bright light in a little family. Ruth is a Moabitess. She's an enemy of God's people. Um, an Israelite family leave Bethlehem because of famine. Famine is a sign that God is judging Israel. That was typical of the days of the judges, God's judging them. This family leave, they go to Moab, husband, uh, the father and sons die in Moab, leaving um, Ruth, this Moabitess who has married one of the sons, to come back with um, the mother whose name I completely forget right now. This is utterly ridiculous. Naomi, bitter Naomi. Naomi brings Ruth back. Orpah stays in the, in the land of the enemy. Ruth comes back with her. She shows this covenant love. And here is the picture of this, this enemy of God, um, the Moabites. We've they've said, the Old Testament says awful things about the Moabites. Not allowed in the assembly of God, all that kind of stuff. Here's Ruth, who's a Moabitess, But because she shows this covenant love and stays close to Naomi and says, wherever you go, I will go. Your people will be my people. Your God will be my God. Um, Ruth comes, and the sovereignty of God is beautifully at work. That's part of the story of Ruth. In very ordinary human situations, God engineers that Ruth will be sowing in a field that belongs to Boaz. We discover that Boaz is a relation of Ruth's, but not a close enough relation of Ruth's to be her kinsman redeemer, to buy her as his own wife. She's now a widow, obviously, and and destitute. Um, There's a closer kinsman. But the closer kinsman is not willing to make the sacrifice to have Ruth as his own and to take on Ruth's whole family affairs. He, he, he doesn't want to make that sacrifice. He wants to, so, so he allows Boaz to do it. And Boaz, through great sacrifice, then says, I will take Ruth and all of her family and land. I will take her to be mine. I will take, I will buy her back to myself. And we have this word redeemer, beautiful word, which means being bought out of slavery. Christ has bought us with his blood And so enemies like Ruth, who show covenant love, who show faith um, in Israel's God, they are brought not just into Israel, but of course the end of Ruth is beautiful. Just in very few words, Boaz marries Ruth, um, their child is Obed, who then gives birth to Jesse who then gives birth to David. So they're the great-grandparents of King David, and we realize suddenly that this enemy, Ruth, simply because she shows this faith, this covenant love, um, she enters right into the line of Messiah, King David, that will lead to King Jesus. So Ruth is a picture of the gospel. In a very simple romance story, um, you have an enemy of God showing faith, being brought right into the line of the Messiah. I wish we could say more, but we're two minutes past nine, and uh, let's leave it there for tonight. We will start with First Samuel next time, but let me just close in prayer, and then you can go your merry way. hope you found this helpful tonight. Heavenly Father, thank you for your word. Thank you for its beauty. Thank you for how we see Christ in all these Old Testament books written hundreds of years before he ever came. Thank you, Father, for the gospel, for Jesus, who has brought us enemies. You deserved your wrath and you have brought us right to sit at your table to sit at your feet to be part of the line of the messiah thank you lord for loving us and showing us grace that way help us father to be ruthless with our sin father just as we remember from uh, joshua um, help us to be ruthless with the sin in our hearts so that we can be a holy people as leviticus tells us to be so that we will not be disobedient and wander round aimlessly in our Christian lives, as Israel did in the book of Numbers, but help us to be like an army, um, spurring one another on towards love and good deeds, getting our relationships right with each other, and then moving forward to take this gospel out to lost men and women in the world. Father, help us to do this, strengthen our churches. Um, may we honor your name again, um, both internally within the church and externally, as we take your word to lost people.